This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Samsung, provider of defense-grade mobile security for an open world. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, October 2nd, at a critical moment for cyber risk in the United States, the Washington Post brought together government leaders, security experts, and advocates to discuss emerging threats across the cybersecurity landscape. Experts at the forefront of cyber threat detection and prevention also offered a global view of cyber dangers facing the U.S., including foreign interference in American elections, infrastructure vulnerability, intellectual property theft, and targeted misinformation. In this segment, a leading corporate cybersecurity executive from Microsoft discusses the development of cutting-edge tools to secure our increasingly connected world, protect consumer data, and stop cyber attacks before they spread. Let's listen. Hi, everyone. My name is Kat Zakreski, and I'm a technology reporter and the anchor of the upcoming Technology 202 newsletter here at The Post. It launches later this month, but you can sign up right now on The Washington Post website. I'm pleased to have Ann Johnson with us today. She's the Corporate Vice President of the Cybersecurity Solutions Group at Microsoft. We'll be talking this morning about privacy, information sharing, and other cybersecurity issues from the vantage of the private sector. Before we begin, a reminder to tweet any questions for Anne using the hashtag postlive. So Anne, many people in this room were likely impacted by a corporate data breach in the last year, whether it was the Equifax data breach that was discovered or the Facebook breach that was discovered just last week. So maybe just to kick off this conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what you see as as some of the common mistakes that companies are making when it comes to cybersecurity? Sure, um, that's, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so look, consumers and corporations are impacted by breaches um, on a daily basis. Um, there's, there's an old saying in cybersecurity that there's two type of companies, those that have been breached and those that don't know they have been breached. And what we find, um, I lead the incident response practice for Microsoft for our customers globally. And one of the things that we find is that companies um, are not always as disciplined as they could be with rigor around cybersecurity controls. And I'm not talking about the acquisition of new technologies or new tooling. I'm talking about the use of things like multi-factor authentication, the use of passwords for their domain environments. Um, there are things that we see that with password sharing, with the reuse of passwords, with passwords being um, fundamentally weak, and unfortunately with passwords being weak, it's, a, it's an area of attack, it's a prevalent area of attack. We still see about 80 to 85% of breaches start with some type of phishing attack. So that's the email you get into your inbox that looks like it's from the legitimate source, but it's not. You click on the link, you enter your credentials, and then your credentials are stolen. And that is the most common type of attack still. And we'll talk probably a bit about password lists, but that's one of the things we're doing to try to address it. And so when you mentioned that these social engineering attacks are the, the most common way that a lot of these breaches start, I mean, are companies allocating their budgets properly to address that when they're spending on cybersecurity? 
The interesting thing is, yes, companies, though, the spending on cybersecurity has increased every year for the past about five years, and it continues to increase. What I think we as an industry can do better on is education. I think we're spending a lot on tooling. It is a large population of users. Some of them are not digital natives. If you think about the workforce today, we have multiple generations, and some of them didn't start with technology. I think we spend enough money probably on tooling. I don't think we spend quite enough money on user education. And so what are some user education initiatives that have been effective, um, particularly at Microsoft? Sure. We fish our employees. So we send out an email that looks like a legitimate email as a phishing attack to our employees. And then based on who actually clicks on those illegitimate links, we can then tailor an education program to either that business unit or even to that individual. We do regular recurring training on what to look for in a phishing attack, what to look for in a suspicious type of attack. Um, we, I was talking to um, another um, government entity on a global basis recently, and the observation we made, and I'm old enough that I lived through you know, the historic Cold War, right? And you would see in government buildings, you would see messaging and signage and things about don't talk about this and don't do this. We don't have that same type of passion around cybersecurity and that same type of visibility. So one thing we've advocated, and we, you'll see in our elevators in our building, is an education. So the average person will walk in the elevator and see something about a phishing attack. You'll see it on the monitors we have around our buildings. It's just that kind of pervasive getting it into the psychology of individuals so every day they're thinking about what could happen in a phishing attack, but also what a phishing attack actually looks like. And so, Anne, I just wanted to get um, into the headlines from this week, and there's been a lot of attention on this breach at Facebook that was announced on Friday, and it's one of the first major breaches we've seen in the post-GDPR era after that rule went into effect, and we saw Facebook disclosed it within three days. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what impact do you think the new rules with GDPR and breach notification will have on industry? It's an interesting question because as I watched Facebook's response, there were a lot of things they did right in their response, right? But when you're doing incident response, it, like any investigation, it doesn't just happen overnight. So you have this balance of needing to notify, but you're notifying with an incomplete set of information, and information that is going to dynamically change. And I think that is the biggest challenge to corporations right now, is they will be forced to notify by some of these privacy laws that are coming with breach notification periods, but they're going to be notifying a large consumer base of folks that are not necessarily technology savvy with incomplete information which could then send panic, depending on how it's covered, depending on how it's communicated. There's a lot of information that will get out there that will change dynamically over time. And the folks that are responding to it, I don't mean the Facebook or the corporations, the individuals are responding to it and how they handle their account. They're going to have to do maybe one or two steps to actually make their account secure as the information changes and we find out more about the breach. And I think that's the biggest impact of GDPR. If you think about the breach notification laws, there's one you know, being thought about in the US. There's laws um, in China, Brazil that are coming online. If you think about all of those laws, they're going to dynamically change the way companies do incident response because they actually have to have a notification that's most likely during the course of an active investigation, and that changes the dynamics significantly. And so what are some things that companies can do to kind of you know, make sure that customers are getting that information during these evol evolving situations? Yeah, that's that's it's it's difficult, but um, you know we we have a pretty hard stance on privacy, right? So you're going to have to balance. Um, you know, we we have a hard stance at Microsoft about privacy, customer data, how we handle it, but yet you balance that against that breach notification. So so companies are going to have to give 
and they're gonna have to be incredibly responsible, right, in their breach notification. Providing the information that is required under the breach notification doesn't necessarily, though, give the consumer the information they need to protect themselves online. So it is a balance of making sure that you have a, in my, you know, in my view, we have a moral responsibility to make sure people can stay safe online independent of a breach notification law. So you want to give the maximum amount of very descriptive and prescriptive information at the soonest point you can while also being compliant. And you should be doing that regardless of whether you're compliant, you have to be compliant or not. There have been breaches in the past that have been, I'm gonna say hidden, that's too big of a word, but there have been breaches in the past where the notifications may not have been soon enough as we would have liked them to have been, and it didn't give consumers the opportunity to respond quickly enough to protect themselves. And so while we're on this topic of GDPR, just wanted to talk to you a little bit about what Microsoft's transition was like. What were the biggest challenges for Microsoft as this law went into effect? Yeah, it was, a, you know, like for all corporations, right, it was a fun time. Um, <laughs> we, um, we took a stance that we were going to be GDPR compliant in May around the globe, so not just in the UU. We said it's a good standard, it's a good baseline for privacy. We know that there are other privacy laws that are coming along behind GDPR, and we felt it was a really good baseline. But we also felt because of our ethos around privacy that it was something that we should set an example, that we should be fully compliant, we should be private, and that EU standard was a really good standard. So as we went through the process of understanding where our data was, classifying the data, making sure that if I asked to be forgotten at Microsoft, no matter where I was around the world, that we had the skills and the tooling to automatically forget me. That Because that, I will tell you, in talking to customers globally has been their biggest concern, is we don't even know where necessarily your accounts are. We can't identify them, and we don't have automated tooling to remove you from every system. So it was something that we took a laborious effort around within uh, Brad Smith's organization to make sure that we had the right tooling in place so that we could be fully compliant in May, and we were fully compliant in May. There was also a tremendous amount, again, of employee education and user education that went on around that time. And so we're sitting here in Washington, and there's a lot of discussion right now on the Hill about privacy and whether we should have a federal law in the U.S. addressing privacy. And so I'm curious, looking at GDPR after your transition, what are some things that lawmakers should look to in GDPR as they shape legislation here addressing privacy? I think the fundamental thing is that a user's information, whether it's a corporate or a personal entity, is your information. You should be the owner of your information and you should be able to determine what happens to your information. It's our stance, by the way, at Microsoft with our uh, corporate customers, with our consumers, that your information is your information. And we need to, we have an obligation, regardless of legislation, to keep that um, information private. And I think if you take that as a baseline, then whatever regulation you, that you build from the baseline of a corporation or an individual's information is their information and they are the ones that have a right to that information, whatever legislation you frame around that will be the right with the right intent. Interesting, and so what are your thoughts on the California state privacy bill that is set to go into effect in 2020? Um, because it seems like that will also have an impact on the conversations around legislation at the federal level here. California is always such an interesting state, right? Because yeah, I lived there for a long time also. So um, they tend to be on the leading edge and testing the waters, or what I say, breaking glass at times around a lot of the legislation they pass. And sometimes it will get pulled back a little bit. But they're always like testing the waters to see how far they can go. Because again, they're taking it from what I believe is a very principled view of how things should be. Now, is that a practical view of how things should be? 
At times, yes. I find their privacy legislation, though, that they um, are putting in place not to be any more onerous than others that I've seen. I've seen, like, the drafts of the China law, the Brazil law, and obviously I've studied GDPR. So I don't find their privacy legislation to be any more onerous than others, but it will be a litmus test of what can actually be held in the United States and what we can do on a national basis. And so today we've heard a lot of discussion about cyber cybersecurity threats to the public sector. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the relationship between the government and the tech industry when it comes to addressing cybersecurity. What kinds of things could be done to improve cybersecurity information sharing and that level of cooperation between these two groups? So as you know, Microsoft, along with a lot of our peers, um, do a lot of sharing with the public sector. We actually have sharing relationships with all of the five eyes, and we do a lot of, we have a very close relationship with the U.S. federal government with regard to threat sharing. That sharing is necessary. I actually am less concerned, to be candid with you, about the sharing between the private sector and the public sector mm -hmm. than I am about the sharing in the, in the private sector. We are not as rigorous as we could be as a security industry in sharing with our peers. Now, we've, done, we've taken some actions in, in, in the past six to 12 months things that we've done with our Intelligent Security Association, which shares threat directly with our peers and competitors, by the way. We do a lot of sharing with threats. We do a lot of sharing from our machine learning um, learnings. We see something like six and a half trillion raw signals, so low fidelity signals on a global basis of what could be a threat. We distill those down to on a daily basis. Our peak day was like 15 billion, what actually were events we thought we needed to at least put in our machine learning engine for investigation. We share that output. We share that output with our peers that have signed for, our, that have joined our Intelligence Security Association. But it's those type of security industry sharing amongst the private sector that I don't see as sophisticated as I would like as we see with the private public sector sharing. Interesting. And so what is holding the private sector back from having better sharing practices? It's, it's interesting. Um, I, I'd like to, um, I'm going to take the, the higher road and say it's not because it's competition, right? I'm going to assume that, that that's a baseline. I think it's a lack of mechanisms. It's a lack of consistency of how we look at information, so there are no standards necessarily. When you see threat signaling, what does it mean? There's no easy way to pass that. There's not a mechanism to do it. Until we had the cloud, we couldn't even see things on a huge global scale and near real time like we can today. It's one of the benefits of the cloud and security is I can actually see something in Beijing before it ever hits the United States potentially. Um, I think all of those things are in place. I will tell you that the um, financial services ISAC is, one, is like the gold standard for information sharing from my point of view. And I think that that is a model that all the other ISACs are, are adopting. As I see the maturity of like the health ISAC and the manufacturing and, and regulated industries, I see those maturing. But I think that the, then the technology companies also, there have been a lot of starts and stops with the technology companies on mechanisms for sharing. And I think a lot of it comes down to the mechanism, to begin with you. When it becomes hard, it goes in that hard to do task and you don't do it. We have to make it easier. And so could you tell us a little bit more specifically about what your conversations look like today with a company like Facebook or, or Twitter or Google when it comes to these practices? Absolutely. So we're having conversations with them on, on twofold. Um, one of the conversations we had was with our tech accord where we said we won't help any nation state um, hack civilians, basically. That's, that's the highest, you know, I'll put that on the highest level. There's a lot more detail to that, but that's the highest level. The second thing is on in information sharing, and it largely is wrapped around nation state, by the way. Threats we're seeing, signaling we're seeing, things that we're seeing. If we see that a sector in the United States, a particular sector is being attacked by a particular actor, and we have reason to believe that it's valid, then we're going 
going to notify our peers also. We have a very um, explicit relationship in how we share with those type of peers and how they share with us also. And how does that work when you think about Microsoft's global presence and sharing with foreign governments? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So it we have um, a government sharing program that is um, regulated by local laws and regulated by the fact that we're, we're a United States company. So um, we will share with global governments if they are part of our government sharing practice and if we've both signed on and we said this is the limitations and this is what we can share. But we do have a lot of rigor around what we will share with different government agencies globally. And earlier in the conversation when you were talking about just the number of threats that Microsoft sees on a daily basis. You mentioned artificial intelligence. How essential is AI to the future of the private sector's battle in, on the cybersecurity front? Yeah, so as you and I discussed earlier, I'm writing a whole series of blogs on AI. I've been in technology and security long enough that I don't chase the shiny object, you know, whatever the newest shiny object is. So I decided to take this mission of writing a blog series on what is the practical application of artificial intelligence in security? What can we actually do with it today versus, you know, what's this big pie in the sky promise? And I will tell you the ability to synthesize six and a half trillion potential events, right? Low fidelity signal, that's something that when you look at machine learning and you layer artificial intelligence on top of it, you can get smarter about faster. And that's what it's about. It's about being able to detect faster and being able to separate what's a real threat versus what's a false threat. And giving your admins, um, someone on stage earlier talked about the cybersecurity hiring shortage globally, right? It's millions of people. It depends on what stat you look at, which means the people you have, you want working on real data. Right? You want them working on real things that are actionable, and you want them working on the highest priority tasks. So the ability of AI to de-conflict for your security admins is one of the most practical use cases today, and we're using it today, and we have some examples of that, because I think that is probably the thing that we can actually be super tangible to anybody, and I see a lot of organizations, by the way, using AI in that way today as they, as they bring it to maturity. And so I'm just curious because I just moved to DC from San Francisco and it felt like when you're meeting with technology companies there, they're all constantly talking about AI and, and cybersecurity. And I mean, what areas do you think that might be overhyped in? <laughs> um. I don't think that it's like everything a be all end all, right? I don't think that those six and a half trillion signals suddenly get better and become, you know, the one thing, right? The, this is the one thing we have to chase. I still think it becomes a lot of things that we have to chase and what's most important. Um, I'm studying particularly how AI can help us with malware detection and be more predictive, by the way. So if we see an attack in a certain region or se sector, can we predict where the next attack is going to be right before it ever happens? Um, can we model that with AI? I'm doing a lot of things, uh, research right now in IoT detection. Remember, there's a lot of um, devices. If you think about your home, your, your Nest or your Ring doorbell or whatever it is, right? There's a lot of also legacy devices, older devices that were built, you can't even change the password on and they're talking to the internet. So I'm doing a lot of research of how we can actually do better detection with IoT devices and how they come into your environment, where they touch, what they talk to, and be again predictive about their behavior with using AI. I think that's an interesting, it's not there yet, but I think that's an interesting use case versus like I said, some of the we're gonna solve security through AI. I just think you can't, you can't make that statement about anything. To start with, you're never gonna solve cybersecurity. Solve is a big word. It's like it's, it's part of our ecosystem now, just like burglary, robbery, whatever it is, right? Cybersecurity is going to be around forever. We just want to stay a step ahead of the bad guys, just like we do in any other type of crime. And so you kind of alluded to this earlier, but as we look at what's next for the industry, um, 
you know, every time we have a major breach, there's a lot of warnings and reminders to consumers to change their passwords. Um, why in 2018 are we still using alphanumeric passwords? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we are on a mission, I think you've heard in a, in a lot of what Microsoft has said over the past nine to 12 months to be passwordless. Now, what does that mean? It means that passwords as I think about them are gonna significantly change. It means if you think about your phone, right? Um, I have an iPhone that I carry. So I authenticate to that iPhone with my thumb or my face, all of my applications. I have an authentication method that's not a password anymore. By the way, I'm using my thumb or I'm using some, uh, something else to authenticate. That's what passwords should look like to your consumers and your corporate entities, by the way, over the next you know, 18 to 24 months. So that the means of authenticating is frictionless. So so it's easy for people to use. They're not you know, having to remember a complex password and then it's the same password. Here's the challenge. Most people reuse the same password for their six and 10 you know, sites that they use, right? Because it's the one they remember. When that gets breached, their six to 10 sites that they're using online are also compromised, right? We just want to take that away and say, you'll never have to remember, think about, change a password in the future. We want you to authenticate in ways that are easier for you to authenticate and still things that are incredibly unique to you, like your face, or your thumbprint, or your voice, and by the way, an ear, is just as unique as a fingerprint. So things like that is what we're trying to build into the ecosystem. Really interesting. But what happens, you know, we when I have a password that's stolen, I can change my password. But obviously, when you have facial data or fingerprint data, you can't change that once it's been taken by someone. So, so can you talk at all about how the industry is thinking about that issue? Yeah, the security around so that, that without getting super duper technical, the, the hashing, the algorithms, the security around securing that biometric data is very, very strong. By the way, I, I never say anything can't be hacked because anything can be hacked, okay? But the security around that data is incredibly strong. And if by chance your facial recognition was compromised in some way and reused, you still have, like I said, your ear, you have 10 fingers, you have toes, by the way. <laughs> we don't want to go there, but you do have toes. Um, but there are other ways, voice, you know, you think about me, I have a very unique voice. It's not, it wouldn't be easy for someone, yes, they could record my voice and pretend to, to reuse it, but they'd have to be saying the right words, right? And by the way, that's a common, what we call vishing attack, so voice phishing attack right now, is to actually get you on the phone and have you say yes, right? And that yes, they will reuse in different systems. So it's something when you, you know, I just don't answer any unknown numbers anymore. It's my own security control. If it's an unknown number, I fear if someone wants to reach me, they're going to leave a voicemail. I will not answer a number that isn't from someone that's programmed to my phone any longer. Um, but there, are, there will always be, you know, the joke is why do um, people rob banks? Because that's where money is. There will always be hackers. They will always be thinking of new and innovative ways to steal money or to steal information. And so I want to be mindful that we have Secretary Nielsen coming on stage next, and I know she'll be discussing election security with my mm -hmm. colleague Derek. And so um, I just wanted to ask you, what role do you think the private sector has to play um, as we think about security heading into the 2018 midterm elections? So I think we all have a responsibility, um, in the, especially the private tech sector. And we've rolled out programs globally in our Defending Democracy program, um, where we've rolled out um, something called um, Account Guard, where we're actually giving away to any political campaign, um, any candidate, um, security tooling free. So if you're already using your Microsoft you know, Office 365 email, we're gonna give you the security tooling free as part of our account guard um, service. We're also going to, if you sign up, we're also going to look, be, be hunting on your behalf and looking for those potential nation state indicators into your campaign. And we think it is a responsibility that we have as a company that functions in the United States to do this 
regardless of what side of the aisle you sit on. We also think it's a responsibility we have globally, so we're offering this out to global governments too. And so we talked a little bit earlier about partnerships between various tech companies and, and whether information sharing could happen. How is that working looking at election security particularly? How much are you in contact with the other technology companies like Facebook and Google who are also addressing this problem? So as I mentioned earlier, we share indications of nation states attacks and that, that's regardless of you know, industry segment, et cetera. It would be the same type of sharing. Got it. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Anne, for being here. And uh, now please welcome my colleague, Derek Hawkins, who will lead our final conversation of the morning with Secretary Nielsen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.